With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come check out our stuff. I got a long 3,000-plus word uh, member-only uh, G-file about this third-party stuff and everybody at NR getting their hackles up about it and Mona Charon coming at me from the other direction. Um, you can check that out if you like. And um, to that end, uh, full disclosure, I don't think I've told Michael this, but um, our guest today, um, I originally asked Charles Cook, who was the first person at NR to respond to my third party column. Uh, and he couldn't do it because he was traveling. And then I saw that Michael had written one too. So I asked Michael Brendan Doherty, um, who's our guest today to do it. And I apologized to Charlie by text saying, sorry about this, but once again, an Irishman has stolen a job that rightfully belongs to an Englishman. <laughs> so, uh, Michael Brendan Doherty of national review. What are you, a, a senior writer? Some what, what senior you, writer what? national yeah. review online, I think is the okay. official title. It's, it's amazing how little such things matter. Um, yeah. <laughs> but we try not to tell that to young staffers because, you know, when you're starting out in life, the title's a huge deal. And then later it's, <laughs> what is my title again? But um, <laughs> anyway, um, thanks for coming on and, um, uh, do, uh, uh, the forms require me to say it. What was the name of your, your latest book, your memoir? Oh, uh, the memoir was, uh, my father left me Ireland. That's right. It was wildly positively reviewed, wonderful literary, um, endeavor. And I recommend it, it to people. So, um, with the pleasantries out of the way, I wrote this piece. I didn't say it was a thought experiment in the column, but I kind of thought it was at least somewhat implied. One does this in columns from time to time, wrote it for the other yeah. times. And, I made the argument that uh, the the GOP is is descending into an abyss of asininity, and mm-hmm. um, and I and I proposed that one way to to sort of get it back on track is to create not so much a national third party that runs in every election as a as as its own thing like the Bull Moose Party, but instead various sort of local conservative parties, sort of like the conservative party of New York to basically play the role of either a, in, endorsing a Republican candidate as an actual conservative, um, or at least not a, uh, election conspiracy, conspiracy theorist. 
Um, or in a, in the case they can't find someone to endorse in the general election, they could run candidates of their own and essentially play the spoiler role, which would cost conceivably cost or threaten to cost the Republican candidate, the election and in, in Congress or Senate and that kind of thing. You didn't, you don't agree with it. Dan doesn't agree with it. <laughs> uh, and Charlie doesn't agree with it, um, for s- not identical reasons, but overlapping ones, I would say. So why don't, why don't you run through your problems with it, and and I will tell you where I'm actually in violent agreement or disagreement. Yeah. So I, I listen, ag- agree with it, disagree with it. I the thing that I liked is that you kind of defined the term of what the third party would be about, which is, and I live in New York, and I I vote uh, when I when I have voted, uh, I tend to vote on the conservative party line um, when I can. Um, Precisely for the reason that historically, because it, it, um, you know, I think it was 1994 or maybe 1992, um, the conservative party line in New York, which they endorsed Pataki, um, there were enough votes on the conservative party line that it made the difference between Pataki winning and losing the election. Mm-hmm. And um, he quickly followed through in office by delivering like four or five big conservative goals um in new york which was like at the time it was like reinstating the death penalty um you know like crime stuff uh because this Mm -hmm. was the early 90s so it it makes a difference and it makes a difference it can i totally accept the premise that it can make a difference in how the major party acts to have a, a thing like that so i actually like that aspect of it and I don't, I don't know if I disagree with it as much as I just wanted to play with the idea mm-hmm. and the difficult, the difficulties I see in it were just one, and maybe this is the same dif- difficulty stated two ways, but one is, um, that the party itself can't be, is a, a kind of pro-democracy party, right? Um, right. which is this idea of like saying, um, the 2020 election was not rigged. Uh, it was not illegally rigged or tampered with or or in any other there was no fraud you know, there's no there was no mass there was no massive material fraud like yeah right. sure you're going to find a handful of votes but they're not going to make a difference that's every election um you know people voting in the wrong precinct you'll find some of that but like you never find mate- you don't find material fraud and they're looking for it um so it's a pro democracy party um, because you're basically the, th- the threat you're hedging against is that what Republicans are trying to do is make it easier for legislatures to, you know, declare an election, uh, in some way suspect and then intervene themselves as a, you know, legislate mm-hmm. legislature. Um, but the, pro- and I just said, the problem with that is like to have like a single issue party like that, you can't have the terms under democratic uh, negotiation themselves, right? It has to be like a constitutional, a a party that almost has a constitution or an absolute dictatorship at its heart, right? That like, this is the exact terms on which we are fighting and on which we will endorse the Republican or not endorse, because otherwise you're just going to immediately get people saying like, well, democracy is important, sure, but also we have to get, you know, a plank, we, we can't endorse a candidate that, um, you know, 
uh, doesn't want to bomb Iran or, you know, whatever it is, there would be mm-hmm. some other issue. And then that's the second issue, which is that, okay, if you can't maintain the laser like focus on the democracy aspect, then it's going to just look like um, a factional fight within the party. And, you know, I've noticed obviously that, you know, the, the kind of constellation of anti-Trump or never Trump, right. I mean, it's hot. It blows hottest among people who are, you know, generally like for a very expansive American foreign policy um, who defend kind of the Bush administration's um, foreign policy record, or at least their aspirations uh, with it, you know, uh, Liz Cheney, et cetera. And, and I think that could be a double-edged sword because um, one, it could, in a sense, this the organizing a movement of those people that would play spoiler would make, kind of polarize existing Republicans more against those ideas, mm. um, seeing them as like part of a, which would subter- not bother you very much. Subterfuge <laughs> operation. Well, listen, I mean, listen, I, I, I basically agree with Liz Cheney on, on the election and on Trump and that he should be punished. Um, but I think she makes, I think she and, a, and a couple of others have made like a fatal mistake in then like, taking this occasion of crisis in the party to just unburden themselves. Like, well, you know, I really shouldn't have had all those positions on social issues all these years. I don't really believe in them because it's like, oh, okay. Like, well now, um, you know, now what is your integrity? Like, you know, you're fighting mm-hmm. for the integrity of a party and what integrity do you have? And, um, and who, whose interest are you trying to advance? Like you're saying you want, you need to, we need to exercise the ghost of Trump in order to move forward. But now it seems like you're trying to exercise me from the party. Um, so I, and anyway, like that's, those are larger debates. I mean, I, I, I kind of signal at the end of my piece, I, um, I'm not one of these guys who thinks like the, um, you know, the relative decline of influence of neoconservatism on the right and the rise of populist nationalism is like some epic, um, epochal thing, like, uh, you know, the fall of the Roman empire and the rise of Christianity or something. Like, I think it's just like, like when, when I saw, I guess the lesson I took from 2006 through 2010 and how that affected new conservatives was not, Oh, these ideas were destined to lose. It was more like, Oh my God, this could happen to us. Like my (laughs) side when we get in power and like the rise of Trump was like an immediate, uh, proof that like some of the things I'd been arguing for, you know, could immediately, um, be led by incompetent people or just, you know, bad luck. um, uh, come up a crapper and, and and I don't even think I think I'm just as open to the idea that like um you know if Tom Cotton became a good campaigner and a persuasive leader of the Republican Party those some of those ideas would be ascendant again very quickly don't okay so um uh we stopped ta- we stopped uh the conversation there for two I stopped the conversation there for two reasons one I was trying to fix an audio problem and two um, 
I think we got a level set for a bunch of yeah listeners because I think your I know exactly what you're talking about and what you're referencing and, and all this kind of stuff because I know who you are and I've known yeah. you for a long time and all kinds of stuff. But I so first of all, we should I, I think make it clear that you come from a faction of the right that broadly used to be called paleo conservative. Um, yeah. I'm not saying that you, there are many people on the paleo con side that I have grave problems with. You're not one of them because sure. A lot of the things that make paleo con a pejorative, you don't actually hold or, or, uh, you know, make paleo con a pejorative for some people are not your positions on things, but yeah, you come yeah. from a, non-interventionist much more non-interventionist foreign policy um very traditional catholic um yeah social issue stuff and i think it's just sort of important to get out there because it it it's you're yeah. starting to get into stuff with with liz cheney yeah it yeah, feels yeah. like a different fight and i just want to sort of so i just want to sort of level set for a second the the obje- the primary objections to this third party thing are that it'll make lots of people, and this is this is where you overlap with the other guys. This is a point Charlie makes. It's a point that that Dan McLaughlin makes, is that um, and that you sort of allude to here, is that it'll make a lot of normal Republicans very angry. Yeah. If if a party turns into a spoiler party that hands elections to Democrats, I recognize that. That's fine. We can talk about that if we want, and that. Secondarily, part of your argument is, or part of, another part where your argument overlaps is that when you're angry at another faction, you tend to reject all of its positions, yeah. not just some of them, right? And yeah. and so uh, I agree with that too. I think that's a that's a problem. I also am increasingly unconcerned with the rage of rank and file Republicans at this point, but we can come to that in a second. I do think though that. You, you mentioned something which is actually what I would prefer too, is that that instead of having a third party, you actually had a robust faction within the existing yeah. Republican Party assert itself, and that has not happened. You know, our our friend Luke Thompson has made this argument that the Republican Party's st- is 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 waning as an ideological party and rising as a coalitional party. Steve Tellis and some of the guys at the Niskanen Center have made this argument that factions are going to be decisive particularly in a 50 50 country a faction of five percent of your party is the decisive thing i don't think the people who are not crazy um who don't buy into the sort of you know uh hard trumpist conspiracy theory stuff um are just five percent i think it's more like probably 40 to 50 percent of the republican party but they're quiet they're afraid of the base they're afraid of the attention that that comes from taking on trump frontally and to the extent that there are a lot of closet normal Republicans, um, <laughs> they still understand that they need the base to keep from getting primaried. And so they stay quiet. So the incentive structure of the entire system is set up that the loudest are full of sound and fury and the best <laughs> lacking in all conviction, as it were, in the Republican Party. And if you do stick your head out and you favor something like the impeachment for January 6th, yeah. um, you're toast. But if you, su- if you support that riot or buy into one of various lies about it, you're doing just fine. And that is a fundamentally dysfunctional and dangerous 
thing for the party. And if you can't figure out how to have a faction within the party, fix it. That's why I was proposing the third party thing. I think you generally agree with me about the, yeah. the, the, the state of the party and the Trumpist. I know that, you know, we, we, you were much more sympathetic to populism than I am, and that's fine. We can have that conversation. But what is your proposed way of, of <laughs> dealing with a, the, the current state of play within the confines of the Republican Party? Um, I don't know. Get it, get someone with, with a great blow dart skills into Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that's, I, that's, that's, I mean, like the, the great irony here, and we were texting about this last night briefly is that here I am catching all this flack for trying to come up with some Rube Goldberg, no relation kind of thing <laughs> about, uh, how to like impose sanity on the party and punish the party at the polls so that it, it learns its lessons and gets off the mat and gets serious again. Which again, I don't think is necessarily has anything to do with policy. I mean, we can argue about the policy. Yeah, and I don't policy think it, uh, it's just being grownups, right? It's just not being crazy. And then Trump goes out and issues a statement saying that unless they <laughs> quote unquote solve the problem of the 2020 election fraud, Republicans will not vote in 2022 or 2024. Right. And I'm like, who needs a freaking third party when you got Donald Trump doing well, this the, stuff for you? No, that's the thing. Like s- s- second look at Trump from the bulwark. I mean, like, you know, he's like, he, they're like becoming united now. Like don't vote for Christine Todd and uh, Todd Whitman and Donald Trump agree. Don't vote for Republicans until, <laughs> um, until this election thing is resolved. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, listen, I think a lot of people are, I, th- I don't know if I have, I don't have a solution, right? Mm-hmm. Which is why, why I don't want to, I don't want to look like I'm, I was piling on to you. For no, 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 you weren't, you weren't. And actually, I, as I said in my G file about this, I, I think your points were actually the best ones, or at least the, the, the one we haven't quite gotten to yet. But, um, but, um, so I think, and, and this is true of a lot of things, like some problems blow over without you doing, <laughs> you know, having to do that. And, um, I know a lot of people are committed I think there are a lot of people because they experienced Trump's rise as like a, um, like a literally like a desecration, right? Like they've Mm -hmm. put their life, they've put their career into a project and a movement. And then they found out something about it that was so rude and so disillusioning uh, that the only way that they can imagine coming back to it is if there's some grand gesture of like repudiation that to me, I think is a fantasy. Like, it's just not Mm -hmm. like, you know, Reagan did not do some grand repudiation of Nixon, right? Like Mm -hmm. there were reasons to do it, you know, like I could imagine, you know, people back then saying like, Oh, you know, Nixon committed crimes, secretly bombed Cambodia, did all this, um, you know, and for conservatives did all this stuff that was like wage and price controls. Like we have to like exercise the ghost. Uh, but Reagan didn't do that at all. Um, and I don't think the future nominees of the Republican party or leaders of it are going to be like full on, uh, repudiating Trump. Although in some ways, you know, I have to say Trump did repudiate Bush in a way that was shocking. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time and probably helped him um, somewhat in such a divided uh, primary fight. 
So, but I, I don't think that that grand satisfying repudiation will happen. And, and even if, you know, you know, even if you could imagine a 2024 convention speech that was like obviously pitched at the normal, the normal people in the mm-hmm. suburbs that want a normal responsible party, you know, I'm sure commentators would, could call it like this was in some ways like a real repudiation of the political style of Trumpism. Uh, like, I don't think it would satisfy a lot of people who were, who experienced this uh, in the way I said, as like a full desecration of their lifetime of work. Yeah. But there's so few of us left who feel that way. I mean, <laughs> like there's an, a lot of accommodation, you know, with, well, yeah, with no, 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 that is the desecration. true. That, that's true. There is a lot of people who felt who uh, it's accommodation. And then on the other side, I think, and, and the reason why I think this moment won't come and won't satisfy is that the Republican base and even people beyond the Republican base, people have only recently kind of come over to the right because of, you know, COVID or other things in their life. Like they just, they're treating, still treating politics as an emergency, right? Like as like, Mm-hmm. I'm subject to rules by crazy people. Like why, why are we still at this point masking, you know, two year olds at daycare? Why are we walking into restaurants and, you know, the customers get to take off their masks, but me, the server, I don't when I'm vaccinated, you know, like there's, there's going to be all these things of like, there's more, some more immediate craziness on offer or like why, uh, why does the federal government need to look at every $600 transaction happening in my bank account? Um, you know, whatever it is, like there, there are a lot of people for whom Trump is not the immediate, um, threat and they don't see as you do, uh, or as Kevin Williamson does this kind of slow, um, effort in state legislatures that looks like, uh, you know, slow motion danger to the next election. So I, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's, it's a tough nut. I mean, so if you're hoping to get rid of the, that Trumpy influence, um, the biggest thing is you hope that Trump doesn't want to run again because he thinks he'll lose. He'll lose. Um, yeah. Some people are apparently reading this statement that we were talking about just before, about don't vote as his, tacit way of saying he's not going to run i i yeah who knows <laughs> i don't buy that i mean I, I i just there's a 50 50 chance right as far as i can tell because there's a 50 he, he makes decisions like one of the tic-tac-toe chickens in chinatown right i mean it's just the flashy thing i'll pick at that now so I, who knows but I, um, I, I mean i think i think he won't because i i think he'll remember that like he had a tough time of it, you know, with the job itself and having hiring people that he could take advice from and give orders to like all that's like, like he literally struggled with the day to day in a way that I think would, would have made an impression even on him. Um, and, uh, so I have some hope in that as far as getting rid of him. What I am worried about though, long-term though, is not just Republican defection from, you know, good norms of constitutional government, but like overall 
American defection from them, which mm-hmm. I think is increasing. And um, yeah, like I, I don't, it sounds so lame to say both sides, but like, I actually do, I do think this is a culture wide phenomenon where there's just massive disaffection from institutions and norms and that the, um, the felt threat of partisan combat and policy making is driving people uh, to abandon the rules that we share together uh, and yeah, no, or, or to weaponize them. Right. I mean, so yeah. they take the, it's, it's sort of, I, I don't know where this quote comes from, but I saw it recently and I can't get it out of my head where it's like Caesar or someone saying, you know, for, um, for my enemies, the law, for my friends, everything. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, and it says like, you heard like, you know, Mike Pence would do this all the time where, some Democrat would say something rude and disrespectful and Mike Pence would do his, you know, disappointed pastor act. We'd say, Oh, that's so, I'm so, I'm so hurt and saddened to see people stooping to those levels. That's so, you know, it's so corrosive to our culture. And then he'd be asked about Trump doing something truly <laughs> heinous, you know, <laughs> defecating on an altar or something. And they say, well, he was, you know, he was elected to be a disruptor. Right. You know, yeah, so it's this, yeah, yeah. and, and I've been making this point about the norms thing for a very long time that the, that when one side breaks with norms, it's bad in its own right, but it's also bad because it gives psychological permission to the other Absolutely. side to break norms as well. And you saw this, I mean, you can do it with the filibuster stuff going back to Harry Reid. You can do it with, you know, when Trump was busting norms and then all of a sudden there were all these really outrageous leaks out of the White House by people who were violating norms because they yeah. were so horrified by Trump's norm violations. And then the Trumpists get furious at these norm violations against Trump. And it just becomes this virtual, this yeah. vicious cycle, you know? I mean, it, it was like I, I wrote a piece, this is just before I went to National Review, but I wrote a piece, I think, during the inauguration week saying like this was the th- the immediate threat of the Trump era was that like most people see him as having broken so many norms to get to the presidency, whether it's, you know, the way he played factional politics, the things he said, the things he said about immigrants or Muslims or whatever. And you could see journalists like throwing away their norms as far Mm -hmm. as like vetting information uh, as far as like letting themselves be used by interested actors. I mean, that's always been the case, but I think it became much worse um, in the Trump era, you know, and it ended up and you, you end up with a thing where like, okay, if I'm talking to my hardest core conservative Republican friends and, you know, they're going to point and say, Hey, 50 former intelligence agents were willing to say the Hunter Biden story was Russian disinformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, to justify social media suppressing it. So, like, what do I care if, um, you know, I know my guy but is lying, but he's lying to my face and I know it. Um, whereas they, their lies I'm supposed to believe and giant institutions will be governed by those lies and they'll govern me by those lies. And it's just like, okay, well, this is basically hell if, if this is where we are now. Um, yeah. So no, I, 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 I don't know, I don't know how to, I don't know how to, 
you know, like restore good government. Um, it's such a, a monumental task to rebuild, to rebuild trust. Um, so right, well, let, let's, let's talk for a second about the faction thing. Cause I mean, part of I mean, just part of what you're getting at with, with, or what we're getting at with the erosion of the norm stuff is one of my principal disagreements with the guys at the bulwark, which is that they were all in on HR one to solve this democracy stuff. I mean, they said they'd rather a skinnier thing or whatever, but HR one was in full of all sorts of really hideous, the, yeah. for the people act hideous, you know, even though I mean, it was, they were doing it statutorily or trying to do it statutorily, it was still full of hideous, uh, norm violations, federalizing elections, doing all sorts of things yeah. that, um, it, to fix problems that weren't, the actual problem that the 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 what Kevin calls the the slow coup um, was about, and so I don't you know this is something that a lot of people have a problem understanding about me is that because I'm critical of Republicans doesn't mean I'm any more sympathetic to where the Democrats yeah. are on a lot of these things. But I want to get to this fact. So the the faction point. So I mean the irony is um, you spent ideologically a good period of your yeah professional life in the wilderness you were a part of a I, I think it's fair to say with no pejorative attached a faction on the outs yeah um, and and i was not now i'm definitely in the faction of on the outs and so in some ways you know neo is the new paleo um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but our paleo is the new neo and one of the things that you know i find fascinating is i've been thinking about this you know bill crystal who i respecting as a friend but you know his argument is was argument is about how disaffected republicans should join the democratic party you actually look i used to work for ben wattenberg if you actually look at the disaffected democrats who joined the republican party um which was the second wave of neocons the first wave was irving and daniel yeah, bell yeah, yeah. and those kind of guys the second wave neocons um they all in very short period of time became full spectrum conservatives Right. They were supposed to be liberals who were just mad about anti-war stuff and mad about the maybe the excesses of the great society and the cultural revolution thing. But they were still sort of LBJ kind of liberals at heart. And you look at them, you know, Bill Bennett, Gene Kirkpatrick, uh, Charles Krauthammer, um, uh, Ben Wattenberg. You look down, you go down that list. They all eventually checked all the boxes or nearly all the boxes on the list for of sort of standard mainstream conservative orthodoxy. I would worry about the same thing happening for conservatives who joined the democratic party. Like it's just very difficult to talk about being pro-life oh, in yeah, a very yeah. pro-choice party. It just, it's hard to do. And, but so the paleo survived in one form or another, uh, sort of, yeah. through all of it. I mean, look, I mean, there's, there's i know there are many rooms in the mansion but yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but um like i was talking to george will on this podcast a week ago or two weeks ago times a flat circle um and he was making the argument that he and i people like us who still are sort of our version of conservatism classically liberal infused conservatism uh need to be dedicated ideological minorities who are willing to fight factional fights and that's the story of conservatism it's the story of neoconservatism it's the story of paleoconservatism it's also the story of bolshevism <laughs> you know it's yeah, the story yeah, of a yeah. lot of isms so like do you think that just fighting the good fight intellectually is the only recourse available and hope I, people I, come to their senses yeah i basically do i mean listen 
you know, when I when I think about this, I was thinking last night before coming on this podcast, I was like, it feels like we're all just fated to slowly learn the political lessons of Ecclesiastes, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like all is dust, all is vanity. Um, you know, I. Yeah, I started out on this like minority Um you know, and I started working at the American Conservative in 2006, and like just about by that time, the Iraq War was already starting to look sour. I mean, I was already an opponent of the war before then, um, but you know, to me though, it's like, oh, who cares about the opinion of like a 25 year old or whatever I was then? <laughs> um, uh, and we were willing to do it. And I remember though, at the time, and what was crucial was the 2008 election came around and this is like a moment for the American conservative as an institution where, you know, the Bush presidency is coming into eclipse and our, our argument with the Bush presidency is coming into eclipse and this new fight is coming up and there's John McCain on one side and John McCain is like, has become like our bet noir. He's for, mm. and you know, he's, soft on the border. He is an ultra hawk, you know, invade the world, invite the world is how we kind of went after him. And then there was this like burbling up of Obama cons, right? Like, uh, at the time, you know, people, you know, will Gosh, forget about, forgot about the Obama cons, but yeah, so, there was a yeah, thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah it was yeah. a thing like from Christopher Buckley to, um, who's kind of his own man and kind of a, a totally sui generis case. David but Brooks, to be sure. David Brooks. Well, there was also, um, there were several others and it was like, we, I remember if, you know, it was a very small staff at the time and it felt like this hinge moment. And, but somehow we knew that we could not be, we were not Obama cons. Like we might've, you know, there might've been one person on the staff that voted for Obama. But I remember we ran a Brendan O'Neill cover piece saying, like, if you look at Obama's speech, he is just as in principle committed to what we're fighting against as McCain you know, is. And that turned out to be true. And, and you know, we could talk about Libya or whatever afterward. But I remember it was like there, it was like a decision moment of like, are we a faction that changes sides over time or not. Mm -hmm. And we were very much realized like, no, our home is on the right. And, and, um, and, you know, we, we were always attuned to things like, you know, Hey, national review is holding the line on immigration, like rich under rich Lowry. They are running, um, you know, basically stuff that we're in line with as well. So it's not like all is lost here. Um, you know, whatever, you know, you catch us on the wrong day and we would curse anyone out, but, uh, <laughs> you know, that's how it, how it went. And what I realized, I guess, was in these fights is like one, maybe the magazines don't have as much power as we thought, uh, you know, as maybe or as they luck. used to. I mean, I think that's or, yeah. definitely the case, you know, and, um, and two, like there are like just, just history changes. Right. And, and you can't know, um, what's coming up next. So for instance, I would say like the, for the, for the larger paleocon case, um, you know, uh, 
I'll, like I'll take trade for instance. You know, Buchanan criticized all the the the, the WTO moves. You know, bringing China in and, and kind of globalization, which is basically the story of China's integration into the global economy and really into the American one. And like the first returns on that policy were like an unbelievable splurge of prosperity in the nineties, <laughs> you right. know? Uh, and if people had been right that this rising prosperity in China would lead to like political liberalization in China, and there were signs that it was or in the early 2000s, there were, there were signs that, you know, there might be more room for, for politics in China to emerge organically. You know, Buchanan's warnings would have just, you know, fallen out of history like any others. It's only because like the costs were more concentrated in certain American regions than people anticipated. And, you know, this, this historical turn in the Chinese communist party, which is now becoming more assertive again and more, uh, controlling through its economic arms that, that reach around the world, that the, this is now a more credible moment for that, for that skepticism of our trade relationship with China. And that, but that can change again, right? Like we just don't Mm -hmm. know what will happen in China and maybe, you know, you couldn't have predicted that Vietnam would be like this great trading ally and partner in the Asian region um, that it is now. Um, so no, I don't but know it's what, a, it, 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 you're making it in a very subtle way, but it's a, it's actually a very important point, which is that sometimes you know, like K Street lobbyists, they have this expression when uh, the rainmakers they're they're like, yeah. when it rains, dance. Right. So like if 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 something good happens, take credit for it by saying you did it. Right. And <laughs> and there's a real tendency among that with intellectuals to uh, wait for the right headline and say, see, we were right. Yeah. And 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 sometimes I mean, sometimes there's real seriousness behind it. I mean, I'm not saying that it's always wrong, but like if you had spent the nineties saying, Hey, we got to take the threat of Islamic terrorism really seriously. And everyone was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep it down. And then nine 11 happens. All of a sudden you're a friggin' prophet. Right. But if nine 11 didn't happen, you wouldn't be, it doesn't mean you were wrong necessarily. It might mean that just the contingency of events played out a little differently. And maybe like they got stopped at TSA and you never, you know, or not TSA right. didn't exist then, you know, but you know, uh, and I'm, I've written this a bunch of times with events don't just change the future. They change the past. And, right? So and, like 1917 became much less important after nine 11 and right. like 1926. when the, when the Wahhabis took over Saudi Arabia, all of a sudden became hugely much more important or 1935. When F, whenever that was, when FDR made his deal with the house of Saud, that became a much more important event. And like normal cold war history became much less important. And that, yeah, that's exactly right. And, it, and and something is happening to the Republican Party too, based on just the you know the regional coalitional transformation of the country, right? Like in a, in a way, like um, like you're sowing the su- you sow success in one era, and it becomes your failure in the next. So, you know, certain as the the South turned Republican, uh, you know, in my childhood and in in the eighties and nineties. 
And suddenly the South's economic policy became more conservative as well, or more, you know, more free market oriented. And you saw, you know, car factories open up both like native ones, like Saturn was being made in Tennessee because of the union work, union laws, Toyota came into Texas and others. And suddenly the South was, had these dynamic economic hubs and started attracting all these people from uh, the Rust Belt or from the Northeast, uh, mm-hmm. people who's, and became economically dynamic. And now like the, the cultural populism of the Republican South is now like turning off, you know, the South's more cosmopolitan voters and, yeah. and states like Georgia and Texas, you know, maybe on the way out. And suddenly like these ghosts of the Rust Belt which are like whiter, older states are suddenly like riper opportunities for the GOP. And then our, our politics are shifting in response to that is, and it'll be curious to see how that plays out. Um, you know, like I, one of the things that was kind of interesting about the Trump era was that like Trump was so much more secular sounding than George W. Bush. Um, and then he won those, those 64, uh, electoral votes in the Rust Belt, uh, the Brexit states, and where where it's they're not as religious, they're not as evangelical um, as the South, and I'm curious how that affects the party too. Um, so but, any, um, anyway, like I, it, it's just a th- that shift has happened, but there's going to be more shifts to come, and they may be as unwelcome to me as anything, right? Like, it, you know, if, if if the Republican Party keeps going in this direction and starts like losing more of the South, does its social conservatism start to disappear too, right? Like, um, altogether. There's some other sort of internecine eggheadery stuff I want to ask you about, but just, just I've been meaning to ask somebody who's more sympathetic, yeah, to the isolationist tradition. I'm saying I'm not. I'm not using isolation as, as a pejorative, um, Just you know, yeah. yeah, but you know, I mean, you can't, if you actually know about the history of isolationism, you can't use it entirely as a pejorative, even if you really dislike it. Cause it goes back to George Washington, right? I yeah, mean, that's, yeah. that's where the tradition begins is the no entangling alliances thing. But, um, it had, it, it's had, it's good and bad moments. I think we can both agree, um, sure. <laughs> on the left and on the right. Um, but the one thing that, the best ver- the, the 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 best arguments of isolationism from George Washington through J.T. Flynn, you know, uh, through Pat Buchanan, um, was that this is a good and special place, and that we should not mm-hmm. get too mired in the muck of the world if we're going to track that muck back in here, right? And that it was yeah. a city on a hill. That kind of argument and. That is not Donald Trump's isolationism. No, no, no. His isolationism is: you think we're better than them? We kill people too. We're crap. You know, we we should just grab what's good for us because we're no better. He actually, there's, he was actually asked. Yuvalovin was the first person to point this out to me. Did it in the corner. Um, there's actually a great panel that he was on long before he was president, where he was asked about American exceptionalism, and he gives this very coherent, I would argue, very terrible answer about how he doesn't believe in American exceptionalism because he doesn't like the idea that we're saying we're better than any other country. <laughs> That's not American isolationism rightly understood. Right. I mean, well, no, it's not, it's not the tradition, right? Like, yeah, it's, it's definitely not. I mean, um, you know, it's interesting. This, this newer, uh, 
book by this historian from Bard College, uh, Stalin's War. It's probably the most isolationist book I've ever read in a way. Um, you know, it's kind of, and one of its, the points it lands on at the end is that like, okay, the, the, the alliance we struck in World War II ended up leading us into, and the, the way we went about it and empowered the Soviet Union through it ended up leading us into a Cold War where our traditions of limited government were under pressure from this global competition with the Soviets who were mm-hmm. not committed to them, which is like, the, you know, that's like, um, you know, uh, advanced AP calculus conservatism of like the <laughs> late 40s and early 50s. Um, you know, it, it's really... Um, it was really a, a striking thing to read. Um, you know, and there's, there's splits among the, you know, a lot of the people that kind of came together in the post cold war era, right. were not united in the cold war, right. Like, so mm-hmm. like there are a lot of kind of right wing pacifists and isolationists. I think of guys like Bill Kaufman, who's such a beautiful writer um, who were anti cold warriors. And then there's Pappy Cannon, who was like a, you know, I'm for the airlift in Israel. I'm for, you right. know, I'm for uh, confronting communism. And you're seeing that that play out again with China, right? Is that there's a, a group that is much more like we need to um, disengage more from the Pacific to avoid um, conflict with China. Um, and then there's another set that's like, no, we need to draw our red lines because you know, global communism is a, th- is a threat to everyone, um, uh, whether we want it, uh, want to acknowledge that or not. So like, you're, I, I think, you know, what's old is new again. I mean, you're, I think you're seeing that same exact fight play out, um, with China and it's, it's interesting to watch. Um, so yeah, it, I don't know where, I don't know where we'll end up. I mean, I'm hoping that, Am I, you know, I guess if I had a hope for the Biden, for conservatism under the Biden era, it would be that the, the Biden agenda s- stimulates new thinking and puts new issues before the, the right. And then we can stop talking about Donald Trump all the time. And, you know, I think it may be happening. It's just happening so slowly that it feels like it's not happening fast enough. Right. So like, I do think your average conservative is probably just more concerned with like inflation right now than with, you know, solving the fraud of 2020. And I think that'll be more true in three months uh, than it is now. So I'm hoping in a sense that just like the churn of history and, and its surprises will, uh, you know, divert us from what, you know, sliding down a kind of dangerous road. Yeah. Look, I mean, I, as someone who has a podcast called the remnant and it's expended an enormous amount of time and energy telling people I'm not that concerned about hitching my wagon to specific electoral or political events. I appreciate your, I am, but a leaf on the wind. Um, well, approach to something. Well, that's the thing. It's like a lot, this is the thing. It's probably why it's probably why I'm not as successful as I should be. Because like a lot of people are like, "Wow, you really could have, you know, made a made more of the Trump era." And I probably could have, but I just one, I didn't believe in him. And yeah. then two, um, it, like I said, I took this other lesson from you know the 
the fall of the neocons in a way it was like, or the fall of neoliberalism, which was like, you know, how fragile political projects are. And, you know, and on the grand scale of things, it's, you know, the post cold war consensus that I'm always writing about, because that's what I think is really kind of under challenge um, by the politics of national populism worldwide. Um, You know, that was a consensus that, that generated policy change and, you know, and arguably a lot of progress over a quarter of a century. That seems like a good run um, in this grand scheme of things. And it, it seems natural then that, you know, as the costs of those policies roll in or the what's unexpected, of, the unexpected results of them roll in, that you would have a change of thinking. And so I'm just as aware that like, you know, some of the things I'm talking about, like, you know, I think one of the reasons immigration is an issue globally is that the price of emigrating just keeps falling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, and I've been to these academic conferences where people are using satellite imagery to point out that borders are hardening all over the world. Like walls are going up everywhere to kind of meet this phenomenon, this, 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 um, you know, this price drop in emigration, which is enabled by, especially by global communication, right? Like when my, mm-hmm. when my mother's ancestors left Ireland, they would have had an American funeral. What That's what, what it was called. Like you, you would have, before you got on the boat, you would have had a celebration of like, okay, you're, you're effectively, we're dying. never going to see you again. Yeah. We're never going to see you again. Like we might get some letters, but we all know how this goes. You're going to break off contact eventually. And that's it. And you're going to go and have this other life. Well, that doesn't happen now, like yeah. at all. Um, and that's a big reason why people are more interested in moving because it takes less. Um, it also just requires less courage and daring to do. Cause yeah. you can, it's cheaper to go back. Uh, and you know, that and feeling you get, there, I don't know. There must be a German word for it, but you know, that feeling you play chess, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that feeling of where you move your piece and you're pretty sure you want to move it there, but you will not take your hand off of it because yeah. you want to think about it for a long time. <laughs> that's a, a lot of that. That's like emigration today, right? It's like you can actually physically go someplace for six months or a year and still feel enough connected through FaceTime and email oh, yeah. and, and WhatsApp and all that kind of stuff. And, or- and the cheapness of a flight that as long as your immigration status is okay, it's just basically like, let me go see what it's about and see if I like it. And if I like it, I'll, I'll let go of the piece. And if not, I'll come back, you know, yeah, it's and with, just and a with, different thing. Yeah. And with the internet, you can kind of maintain a, a connection to the, the broadcast of um, your former country. And that's why I actually think like Emmanuel Macron yesterday, this is another kind of like response to globalization that now seems obvious. Emmanuel Macron is like, France has got to subsidize more, broadcast for these global streaming networks otherwise our culture is going to get steamrolled um mm-hmm. and like i'm not saying like let's all subsidize actors for 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 national security but like i i get the thinking and um so this kind of um anyway i think this this more populist brexit uh nationalist thing is you know, going to have like a 10 or 20 year run. And then it's going to, you know, the people that are left disappointed by it or left out by it, you know, they're going to have their say. So it, it, like, I, I, it sounds, yeah. Like, like 
I'm a leaf on the wind, but that's what I've learned kind of growing up in this. And um, my hope, I guess my one hope for the Republican party or for conservatism is that we, um, I think our task is to both recognize that the people I think we're representing in America feel left out of the governing institutions in key ways that that is a huge problem for the gov- these governing institutions, you know, it like, why should conservative voters fund academia to such a degree if academia seems to exist just to uh, derationalize conservatives and conservative ideas? Um, so that's that's a huge problem. Um, and so we need to get, you know, as conservatives, we need to get conservative buy-in in institutions again. Um, and And that means both recognizing the corruption of our institutions when it happens uh, but we have to, we can't give in to like, the, I think the immediate temptation is the, um, is the, the real danger, which is like, let's just further atomize and disperse and, um, create cohere. our own new institutions. We don't need Harvard. Let's create our own Harvard. Yeah. Right? Or like, or cohere less. I mean, listen, I'm willing to create a new Harvard. It, like I, I, you know, like I, I Ross Douthat's idea of like a new national university. I actually think that's kind of interesting. Uh, John Quincy Adams like thing to do. Um, but the, I, I mean the like totally ghettoized, uh, thing where like we continue to self segregate and, and effectively atomize and lose our sense of touch with the rest of our countrymen, uh, in the name of, like it, it, that's the temptation to do to escape corruption and escape the influence of these other people. But what we need is institutions that reconcile us. And that like, it just so happens that our like founding fathers gave us some pretty durable ones that are like, if, if like the legislature functioned well, that would be a great way to effect political compromises where you sort out what you really want from what you can live with um, and tolerate. So anyway, that's, that's my like, Obviously, Yuval Levin has kind of brainwashed me on this. <laughs> yeah, no, look, I mean, and me too. But, um, but my my point on the create a new Harvard is you can't create a new Harvard. You can no, create a new institution that tries to have pursues prestige and excellence and scholarship, blah 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 blah, and thinks that one day it'll have the same brand name as Harvard, you know, that kind of thing. But like, you can't just like you can't make new old friends. You can't make new old institutions. And yeah, I mean, this this is a point that i've been hammering for, for decades now it was like the average conservative you know you know conservative ish orthodontist in new rochelle he and let's say he reads national review and all this kind of stuff he would still rather brag to his friends that his kid went to harvard than went to Hillsdale. And I don't mean this as a slight on Hillsdale. Yeah, that's right. And the great contradiction we have in our culture is that the, the institutions that control the commanding heights of our culture are almost all run by people who don't like the culture and the people who do like our culture, (laughs) our traditional culture, um, they're on the outs of all these institutions. Yeah. They're insurgents. And that's a really weird, I mean, it'd be one thing, you know, it's funny. It's like, in the 
1990s, all of a sudden there was this huge explosion of movies and TV shows like West Wing, whatever, that lionized the president of the United States. Um, you didn't get those in the 80s, to be sure. You didn't get those in the 70s, right? But all of a sudden, because Democrats had control of the the White House and you had the American president, you had Dave, you had um, even Independence Day, right? And it's all these things that the president is a great thing, you know? And um, the that was annoying at the time, but I take that at this point because at least that liberal Hollywood was at least saying nice things about the actual institutions of this country and how it operates. You don't get any of any of that anymore. And my problem is, is that, I mean, just to bring it back somewhat to where we were sort of talking about is that I see the populism out there as much more of a fight fire with fire. If you can't beat them, join them mirroring the psychology of the worst things about the left. And in some places going much worse. I mean, I know you have a soft spot in your heart for populism and, 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 you know, sending a signal to Washington and all these kinds of things, but the infrastructure, the intellectual and media infrastructure of the right now is not at all invested in promoting a healthy populism. I mean, Charlie Kirk this week tweeted, <laughs> fight tyranny, get the freedom flu. Right. Um, uh, that is is astonishingly stupid um and you have vast swaths of of the sort of media industrial complex which i do not consider nr part of um fueling it's it's trying to turn normal decent people who are who are angry and 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 attracted to populist politics into idiots and um that's not going to be good for your populism and it's not going to be good for the country. Yeah, so there, there is a mutual derangement happening. So, you know, like this morning I was looking at a clip of Joe Rogan confronting CNN, you know, a CNN contributor about the ivermectin stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like there was this weird week or two where the media started talking about everyone who had who had taken ivermectin during this covid crisis was taking a horse dewormer mm -hmm. and they said it because it was like it made it sound really pejorative and stupid the problem is like millions of americans and, and i think i've read now hundreds of congressmen were prescribed this by doctors and got it at pharmacies and so when you're like when the the left's institutions are willing to like lower their standards that low and lie and you've heard that lie and you've heard people say like you are an idiot you took horse dewormer when your doctor prescribed it to you whether you whether this was before the vaccines came out or after it's just you're gonna be like okay now i don't trust that institution uh and i'm happy to see it destroyed and you know that's i think a real i think academia and maybe the media too they're in this precarious position the republican party is too of um if you don't if you don't hold yourselves to high standards like you're you're extremely vulnerable and you know you would worry i would worry as a conservative about if i was in academia i would be very worried that in the future 
without some buy-in from the American people, you're going to see like a Henry VIII dissolves the monasteries type of moment <laughs> of like, we will liquidate these institutions because they no longer serve us. Um, moment, you know, and, and that was hugely revolutionary and destructive uh, thing from my point of view as, a, as an English speaking Catholic, uh, <laughs> but also like it would be hugely destructive to America to lose Harvard and Yale uh, and Princeton rather than to see them improved and restored. Um, and so, yeah, that's where I come from. Yeah. So from I mean, at I, least I, I, I'm very sympathetic to that. And I think it's mostly right, but I, I, I do think just to push back on, on a little bit, part of the problem is, is that the, the news slash information stream on the right and the left have symmetrical problems. And so like the horse dewormer thing, now it's like, now the argument is, is that, you know, oh, the left just lied calling in horse dewormer. Well, part of the reason why the horse dewormer thing got going is because a bunch of places that sold the horse dewormer version yeah, of no, ivermectin were selling out. And it similarly goes with, like, I heard you guys, you know, I listen to the editor's podcast all the time. And um, um, I mostly agree with you guys about the the DOJ letter and the the about schools and whatnot um yeah yeah at the same time like it is just not true that there are no there have been no credible serious threats against teachers and and school officials and there was almost no mention of that and mm. I, and um uh now i i agree with charlie that that like when those happen it's the job of local law enforcement to do something about it, not the super cops from, you know, the FBI to do it. And I think Mark Garland's letter was bad and the school board association letter was worse and blah, 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 blah. But you do get this thing where each side cherry picks the facts that fit their victim narrative and, oh, yeah. and then it crowd out the other. And, and so, and, and like on the, and again, I'm totally open to the idea of taking ivermectin. Oh yeah, if we I mean, didn't I have a vaccine, you know. Well, so, well, like, well, the thing is, I, I don't think I don't think they're contradictory. I mean, I, I know people who have taken it after they've gotten a vaccine, but I, I also, you know, but there are I'll lots of people who latched onto it because they wanted it as an excuse yeah, not yeah, to yeah. take the vaccine. Oh yeah, because now the vaccine is coded as as liberal, and uh, so you don't want to give into the libs by taking it. And the other the other thing that's um, I'll have to say this I'm. I'll cop. I'm. I'll cop to it. I'm somewhat affected by my perception is affected by that polarization of perception, right? Like I saw a tweet last night with a school board official describing all of the threats she's faced, and she described people brandishing weapons around her house, and um, you know all these other things that are crimes. Like, mm -hmm. and some of them felonies, like brandishing a weapon outside of someone's house, brandishing a weapon can be a, a criminal act itself, right? That's not open carry. Brandishing a weapon is something very different. And often brandishing a weapon tips over into aggravated assault, right? right. You're not allowed to like wave a gun in someone's face uh, as a matter of free speech. That's a really serious felony. And I got to say, I, I saw that clip and my first thought was, 
did she report any of this to the police or is this just made up? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, like, I hear you. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. like, I didn't see anything that serious in cited in the material for the Garland letter. Like all of the, the stuff that was cited was so much less serious than that. And uh, so, so my immediate response was total skepticism. And I know that on the other side of the fight, it would be total credulity, uh, right. you know, and, and so that is, um, yeah, and that and that's that's poison. But it, I'll tell you that I, God's honest truth. That was my honest response. Was I'm not sure I believe this woman. Now she may. Now of course I'm capable of believing it. There are crazy people, and they will do crazy things. And I've, you know, I've seen it. Um, but at the same time, like not only are is our perception skewed by these things, but the f- everyone knows that there's this huge demand for these stories, and so there's so many of them are faked right like yeah. this has been going back years now where like you know like remember there was like maybe it was the 2008 election or 2012 and some conservative claimed that she was assaulted and someone like wrote like chiseled words into her face or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was like she did it to herself um no i mean and the, the, the hate crime hoaxes on college campuses i mean john miller did a great piece about it in NR, I want to say 25 years ago, you know, I mean, like, I know it's been around you subsidize when you subsidize, I mean, it's part of talk about being brainwashed by Yuval, but when you subsidize performative politics and you reward it, you, um, you get more of it. And and unfortunately the supply of outrages, um, cannot meet the demand for them. And so people manufacture some, and I got to say, just, if we're going to admit, you know, sort of, uh, our, our knee jerk responses, I would like to think that this this uh, Daily Signal story about the I mean it's so terrible oh, the rape in the yes. bathroom oh my god it is so terrible and the, I, when I say I I hope it's true I only mean that for like the Daily Signal um, but obviously it's just so horrible I don't we don't want to get into details but um, it's about a uh, an alleged transgender rape and assault in a bathroom and my first response to it when I heard about it was. It's just so on the nose. Uh, and I'm not saying it's fake. I'm not, I, I just don't know what's happening. You know, we'll, we're waiting to see. But like, it should be obviously investigated. The, the Loudoun County statement on it was very weird last night. It wasn't a denial. It wasn't an affirmation. It was sort of like, it almost sounded like they're trying to figure out exactly what's going on too. But oh, these stories. Yeah the stories come out so fast and furious. And that's one of the, I think one of the things that feels it is Twitter where because we all have that instinct to either want to believe or not believe a story. We are id vomits it up on Twitter instantaneously rather than sort of hanging back and waiting to see kind of thing. Oh, I mean, listen, if it's the craziest thing, and this is the, I think one of the biggest changes in the information environment in our lifetime, and it's affected our careers too is you know when you started out people subscribed to national review because they liked the stuff national review said or mm-hmm. they're professionally obligated to at least know what we said and when and liberals who liked the new republic subscribed to the new republic and progressives who liked the nation subscribed to the nation and they get these things delivered to them and they have this kind of you know friendly relationship it's like subscriber subsidized and what i you you literally the media model is like I am choosing to get the thing that I want to hear, which you can criticize as 
bubblicious, but that, you know, that's what it was. But now on the internet, like if Maxine Waters says something dumb, I know about it before she's taken her next breath. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. like somehow it gets to me. The thing that will most stimulate my like fear, hatred, annoyance, whatever, it gets to me instantly. Um, somehow because I'm in this business and I'm, I'm, I'm at the computer, it just comes to me or because people know I'm in this business and they text it to me. Um, and, uh, so that's a hugely different model. And like, it, we're, we're stimulating a, a very different set of responses. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, also, ourselves. there's also this, and I ranted about this a bit on the dispatch podcast earlier this week, but, um, one of my biggest gripes about cable television news just generally like so this includes fox where i'm a contributor but it also includes msnbc and msnbc cnn and also the the weird gargoyle networks newsmax and um <laughs> OAN. um all of them are basically committed to convincing their viewers that there are only two views about anything in politics there's the republican view and the democratic view are there a conservative view and the liberal view and it was like i watched morning joe like yesterday i watched morning joe partly for reasons having to do with original sin but you know partly because um it's really good to sort of get a sense of the conventional wisdom of the sort of beltway liberals it was more useful five years ago when scarborough mm-hmm. was a, a tick or two to the right of the other guests and so you could get the friction would reveal something more but um even so now Garbo says something about how, I don't know, it was the debt limit fight or whatever. And then he goes around the table and asks Eugene Robinson and the guy from AP and all these people. Okay. Now, now you tell me why you, why you think I'm right. Okay. Now you tell me why you think I'm right. And it's, it's everybody's in total agreement on everything. Same thing happens on Fox all of the time. Um, I haven't been asked my opinions about Donald Trump in any sort of direct way in three years, I think on Fox. And, um, and the problem is, is that the, the, the problem with this is that, and I say this as someone who's watched the sort of Trumpification of the GOP happen, a big part of it is Fox because you have, the viewers don't want to hear criticism of Fox. Trump was watching Fox and he didn't want to hear criticism of him and he would call. And so you have this situation where not a single one of the sort of media validators and legitimizers of and or influencers, whatever you want to call them, of what conservative conventional thinking is, broke with the view that Trump was super terrific, awesome. And it was not representative of the reality of the fights within the party. It was not reality representative of the fights within conservatism generally. And the same thing goes on on, on MSNBC on the liberal side. And the problem with this isn't just that the most interesting fights on the left and right are intra coalitional right i mean yeah yeah it's that um it's that those fights actually exist and that there's room for dissent but not if you're watching cable news if you're watching cable news there are no liberals who are critical of biden if you're watching fox there are no conservatives who are like you know maybe it's not a bad thing that trump isn't president anymore or maybe he shouldn't run it's this and it's so not only does it sort of stifle dissent it tells a lot of normals oh i must be alone in having my dissenting view. And I'm sure you can sympathize with this about foreign policy stuff. I mean, like the war stuff, 
How often would you get a non-left-wing guy on Fox who was against the Iraq war? Almost never, right? Never. So, like, so if you consider yourself a conservative, but you were against going to the war, you're like, wait a second, do I have to change my identity as a conservative because of this one issue? Or do I have to shut up? And it yeah, is so it, it's bubble thickening. It's interesting because, yeah, that it that like there was like a one year, basically like the, the very lead up to the war and a few months afterward where it was like really thick and like the spirit of, you know, it's natural. It's war fever, right? I mean, it's literally right. what it is. And and people were saying like, hey, let's send down enough cops to these protests in um in New York to like, I think um, the New York sun ran this editorial, like let's send enough so that there's two witnesses to every act of aiding Saddam Hussein. And it was like, <laughs> Oh my God, like <laughs> this. Is, so we could, you know, the, 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 the joke of it. And I know it was partly a joke, but like the joke of it being like, we're going to try every single protester for treason. Um, you know, it was thick and that's exactly what I noticed again about the Trump phenomenon, it was like, you know, people were not brooking any criticism at all. And, you know, it's funny. I have to say when we do the editors, you know, there's kind of like this monologuing spirit of it, which, which is a little worse now that we're, we're doing it remotely, but we get the best. I, what gives me hope is we get the best feedback when like Charlie and I fight <laughs> about yeah, something. For sure. <laughs> um, Look, you know, that's why I created that, that was my core idea behind the corner was yeah to show rather than tell that there's actually a lot of heterogeneity intellectually and ideologically on the right, but that doesn't mean we all hate each other. And um, right, yeah, no, and that's and it's, it's, it's like it, there's no elite institution that communicates that that point that there is like frothiness and dissent on the left and the right, um, and it's all good faith. And I think that's a huge problem because it it whips people into this idea that if they want as, as partisanship starts to map like a religion in this country, they're told that if they disagree with the dominant dogma they're hearing on TV, they're not just wrong or not just a minority, but they're a heretic and they have to reject well, their for, entire identity. And that's dangerous. And for those of us that are really sensitive to these things, like, you know, like, um, if you watch, Tucker Carlson show and Tucker's a friend. I text with him. Um, he's a good guy. And I don't think he'd, uh, begrudge me saying this, but like the things he doesn't say, if you know, if you can, if you're tuned in enough to listen to that, it are really interesting, you know, in the sense of, um, he's, he's by far the most like populist, you know, or coherently like ideologically populist, um, voice on that network uh and hugely influential because of it but you know the number of times he avoided praising trump and merely turned the subject to trump's voters and like what they deserve i mean it like it's a huge contrast to the hour next to him sean hannity where it's like trump is the principal character um and like, you know, if you're tuned in enough, you can see he's not saying it out loud, but you can see Tucker doesn't think Trump did a very good job. <laughs> like it's yeah, all I mean, there. Look, if, if, and, and yet like it's clear as day, if you're, if you're really tuned in, but he doesn't, 
he doesn't actually come out and say it as plainly as he says so many other things. Um, and it's almost a shame because uh, it would immediately be, you know, like it'd be interesting if someone on Fox News was like, hey, this guy seemed only to listen to Jared Kushner and Ivanka when the chips were down. <laughs> and like that didn't lead us anywhere. Um, I, I don't want to uh, put you in a bad spot, um, but I know Tucker a long time. I used to consider him a pretty good friend. I have no idea what he thinks of me anymore. I think that a lot of what he does now is utterly indefensible on for the very reasons that you're bringing up. He's very smart. He knows what he's saying and he knows what he's, he's not sm- saying. And, um, and so when he has a guy on that weird guy on talking about how, uh, the January 6th riot is like a false flag FBI sting operation, you know, that kind of thing. I don't care how cleverly nuanced he is about it. The impression he's trying to leave with the average viewer is that that's true. And it's not true. He knows it cannot be true. And he, he lies by omission or commission on TV all of the time. And he's very good at it. And so I just, I, 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 we, 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 you can, you can have your response, but like, Oh no, um, no, I'm not, not going to respond. I, I, he's an entertainer. Honestly, and yeah. it, he's just very good at it. And I think it's irresponsible stuff. I, I would, I would only say that, um, uh, hmm, how do you put it? How do I put it nicely? Uh, cause I do like him. Um, he's a very personable guy personally, I, but I, yeah, he's like, so, you know, it's interesting. Like there are two guys in Washington, DC that I met very early on who, were way above where I was when I first arrived and they made time for me totally generously in a way that was like, you know, without having any clue that someday I could be of help or of use to them at all. And they were Tucker Carlson and David Frum. And mm-hmm. I will, I will basically defend those guys to my death no matter what. And, and the fact that I'm defending both of them at the same time makes me very unpopular with a lot of people. But, um, well, it, it demonstrates it's not an ideological thing. Yeah, right? I just think personally those guys have qualities that I, I find really rare. Um, but uh, I believe Tucker always says, oh, always believes what he says, but not always, he doesn't always believe it in the way he knows it will be received, which is <laughs> to be really intelligent to do that. And I would just also say, I just, it's not a vigorous defense. I'll say. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. It's, but it's, um, I would just also say TV is a, a medium that, um, it's not, it's not very good for the people who are on it. Um, I've, ne- I've never met someone who is smarter on television than they are when they take time to sit down and write and think. Sure. Um, and yeah. And just like chasing a mass audience that way, I, I think is corrupting to intellects. And, um, and like, in a way, I don't think, I don't even think Tucker Carlson owns a television. And I think that would tell you a lot too. Um, you know, um, like he probably only watches TV in the sense of like when his producers show him clips of other people on TV. Um, so maybe that tells you something, but you know, I, I don't know where it'll go, but Fox news is it, 
it's a huge issue that as far as it's it's influence well, again, I, again it's subtle I, I, influence on the right it's, I, so I, I don't influence. think the i don't yeah i don't think the influence is all that subtle and i don't oh and, and i and, and, and saw, i don't want to let the other networks off the hook it's it is a it is a problem of the culture generally that as as there is no more really anything that looks like mass media even 30 years ago where instead yeah. of trying to appeal to an audience a mass audience of 30 or 40 percent of the american people we now i mean you said chasing a mass audience about tucker tucker on a good night isn't being watched by and he's the most watched guy on cable news isn't being watched by like 328 million people right you know yeah. it's no. a mass market now is like three or four million people and when you only have a niche market this is a point ben sass makes all the time you're trying to the business model is to hold on to a sticky two percent rather than like appeal to a broad 30 or 40 percent and that means you're going to start giving people what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear and one of the things mm -hmm. that people who watch this crap every night on any of these networks is they want to be told that i'm part of this thing that's important and that the that that I'm part of this team that sees things my way. And so on MSNBC, it is, it is Donald Trump fear porn all night long. And when Trump was least president on Fox, on the opinion shows, it was, you know, a, a different kind of Donald Trump porn. And, um, and the fact is, is that that's not the message that that sends is that there's an enormous amount of homogenized thinking for our team. And yeah. the problem is then, and politicians pick up on this. So like J.D. Vance is running a Fox primary. Josh Mundell is to a certain extent running a Fox primary. Uh, or, yeah, or even further out. OAN. Yeah, or an OAN <laughs> primary. DeSantis got the nomination in the Republican Party by head past the sphincter kissing ass to Donald Trump on Fox all day long. And he's been a better governor than I expected him to be given how he ran. Um, but that's not how it's supposed yeah. to work but that's how they raise money in small donations that's why marjorie taylor green is such a big fundraiser it's because that model works and i just think it's really really bad for the country it's also really easy to corrupt with celebrity um which is that you know and maybe we got to read some other some of the deeper cuts from john adams on on this aspect yeah. of republican life which is that um you know and i saw this in the the previous recall election in california i was much younger and i had some kind of job where i was driving around a lot and then so i i listened to conservative talk radio and i was I, <laughs> this is like telling you how stupid i was when i was young but i was like genuinely scandalized that sean hannity was giving more time to arnold schwarzenegger than tom mcclintock <laughs> <laughs> like it's so funny to say it now because it's like of course of course he was right but i was like in my mind i'm like hey right now as the race starts mcclintock is polling in you know a spot where he could actually win we could actually get a conservative governor of california like this guy has you know his rock rib this guy has got um you know principles and you know you're just you know going in with this austrian kennedy araviste what is going on and it's just <laughs> i realized like as the celebrity figure enters politics it's actually like bigger ratings and relevance right. to political media and that 
that what happened with Schwarzenegger then definitely happened with um, Trump later. And um, you also realize that like media celebrities who are in other parts of the media, the the ones that aren't um, important, uh, the ones that um, they have to get attention without sitting in front of a nuclear arsenal and and federal government that can shape your life. They're like much better at getting attention and holding it than political people are. Um, Political people actually need the threat of policy or weapons or an army to um, command your attention. So anyway, and, and by the way, this also frightens me because I remember one of the really prescient things that was said during the 2016 election was said by Michael Moore, which scared the crap out of me was when he, one, he predicted that the Rust Belt states could go for Donald Trump and he would win where Romney couldn't and win the election. Uh, but he said like something about how he almost admired the Republicans for being smart enough to nominate Donald Trump, an actual celebrity. And he didn't know why Democrats didn't try to get Oprah to run mm-hmm. or someone like that. And I just thought that it's like my night, like that actually is kind of my nightmare is like both parties will give all the way into this and like the American (coughs) regime will like descend into like the worst caricature a French aristocrat could have given it of like, yeah. Or or idiocracy. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean the, the president, you know, macho, what's, what's his name? I can't remember. Yeah. uh, President Camacho. Yeah. He's a wrestler, you know? And, uh, it's look, I, I, I agree. I remember telling that to my democratic friends, in 2015 2016 is like you guys are laughing now but like oh, our, exactly. our our bench of celebrities runs out with ted nugent and scott bayo and you got tom hanks and oprah you know um well that, totally yeah, that's that ex- oh and not only that but you're also seeing it on the other side where i think one of the reasons alexandria ocasio cortez is like this lightning rod figure even though she only won fifteen thousand votes or whatever in a democratic primary is because she's approaching politics as a social media influencer, right? Like that's her, in a sense, like her form of celebrity. It's, it's a much smaller form than the Tom Hanks form of it, but she's mastering that form of communication in the same way that like, I think Donald Trump mastered the New York post or the Fox empire and other things is that's how good she is on Instagram. Uh, you know, it's a smaller audience, but, you know, I definitely see the same thing at work there. Um, and, uh, it'll be, so we're both agreed that we're, we're we're frightened for the future. It's like the most basic conservative (laughs) instinct you can land on. All right. Well, we're going long and, uh, we could keep doing this for a while. And I apologize to listeners who wanted a vigorous debate about the, the third party thing, but you know, Maybe we'll just have to bring in an Englishman for that. Um, and uh, and I know he's not really an Englishman anymore, and you're an American, yada, 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 but got a life, people. No, um, it, there is a funny thing happening there. But we we didn't get to talk about Ireland raising its tax rates. I mean, that was... <laughs> uh, actually, it, it's, it's actually, actually... I should write about it because um, it actually is interesting that the whole political class of that country said that they were committed as a red line to this low 12.5% rate and then agreed to join basically what's called the 
yeah, the the anti Ireland OECD coalition on the on the issue, um, and it actually affects us because in a way, like Biden and Trump and others went after that Ireland because by setting that floor so low, it was actually making it was holding back other countries from raising their taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that Ireland's not going to do that, it gives a freer hand for the UK or the USA to raise corporate taxes. And um, I'll be curious how that all plays out. Like we, that may be uh, another like post cold war era feature that I'll actually miss is that, um, you know, that, that kind of uh, global, buccaneering thing that mm-hmm. places like Singapore or Ireland could do had a salutary effect globally on tax yeah, rates. Yeah. Now it's now it maybe ending. Yeah, except <laughs> I can totally see that coming. That's the kind of thing you can see coming back, right? I mean, it's sort of like we had a really great piece of the dispatch on how people don't understand what the Nordic model, you know, what the Scandinavian yeah. model countries are, what they actually do. Right. And so like, you know, when Bernie Sanders talks about a wealth tax or Elizabeth Warren talks about a wealth tax, they make it sound like these things are going swimmingly in in Sweden and Denmark and in Norway and that kind of thing. They haven't had wealth tax taxes in like a decade or more because they don't work, you know, and they well, yeah, tax no, the that's hell. very true. And it's like sometimes, I mean, we are both Burkean in our own ways. And, you know, as 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 as. Edmund Burke said, example is the school of mankind and he will learn it no other. Sometimes like when this is one of the reasons I disagree with some of the catastrophization that we get on the, the right these days um, is like, you know, Charlie's objection to the third party thing is, is totally fair and accurate in the sense that people are really pissed. It, it would be really bad if Democrats had a bunch more votes in the Senate and the house and they could do even worse things. But, if those things if those things are really terrible, you know, the electorate sometimes punishes politicians for doing really terrible things, and politicians yeah. reverse policies, and like this, the the whole idea that we're one election away from the end of America is an anti-American sentiment because the whole point of this country is that a lot of the most important things in life aren't determined by politics, and it's infected big swaths of both sides that, you know, I mean, when was the last time you heard that this wasn't the most important election in American history? Right. Yeah. And the most extreme Republican nominee ever. Right. And then, and the, uh, no, those are all be tropes. Like, like Mitt Romney is drinking mead out of a human skull. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, no. And like, like you, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I sort of have slight indifference to, uh, electoral outcomes. I really do care about policy, but like, you know, when you talk to a lot of politicians, they're not that impressed. Some, a lot of them aren't that impressive. And, you know, I don't care about their careers. Some of them I do, you know, some, some guys I've met and I've really liked for one reason or, or another, but, um, but it, it, you know, it is difficult too. And the, and the one thing I want to give like Charlie credit for always is that, one thing that his form of politics would make easier is, you know, if you could reduce, if you could recontain the executive branch in, into something smaller than it is, and, and Congress could regain its role as a true legislature, 
and overseer of the executive, um, the, it would, it would lower the temperature of politics because you wouldn't, right. it wouldn't feel like so much of your life was at stake with uh, each election. And, um, but it's, it's going to be, it's, it will be interesting because this, this conservatives are just going to have a tough time in the next decade with this phalanx of um, government corporate institutions and private big private institutions kind of acting in concert without coercing each other necessarily. Right. Or with, you know, like I do think that's the big problem. Conservatism has to get its head around. Right. Which is like, okay, it does seem like title seven is a way of getting around the first amendment by privatizing its enforcement in some way. Right. Like, that you can't think or say certain things and have a job um, because uh, you know, the government makes it risky for a corporation to hire you. And um, I you know, I think we're seeing that some of that play out now. It'll be, it'll be interesting. I mean, you're seeing it some of it with like the vaccine mandate stuff. Like I'm, I'm, I'd be much more hospitable to a government vaccine mandate that was like New York state, uh, is mandating that everyone over 40 get this on pain of a fine of, you know, 500 or a thousand dollars or something like that. But like outsourcing the dirty work to your boss and your HR department, I don't know. There's something, there's something wrong about that. And yeah. No, like I, I got problems. I got, I got, I got problems with the methodology. Like I'm actually not unconvinced that the president of the United States doesn't have the authority to just straight up mandate people get vaccinated. Um, going back, if you look at the history of this stuff, but yeah. the way the courts have ruled and all that, it's complicated and it's probably not. And, and again, I'm not sure that the va- federal vaccine mandates are worth it politically because of the backlash that they generate, which is a got. Yeah, point. yeah. I will say, and I, I noticed how like I was trying to get out and you dragged me back in, but like <laughs> you're not you're not a Sora integralist guy per se. I mean, I'm sure theologically you're sympathetic and all that, but or maybe you are. I mm. f- find that I have very little patience. Like there was just this thing this morning where um, uh, your your colleague, David Hassani, Hassani, I was getting into a back and forth with Sorov about this stuff. Uh, David was making the case that like individual rights are really important freedoms. And if the government doesn't have the right, if it's not spelled on the constitution, it's difficult for the government to make you do things. And Sorab's argument is that's breaking with the classical tradition. And of course you have duties as well as rights and blah, blah, very, we both know these are very old arguments and all that kind of thing. Oh yeah. And, and so Sorab is on team duties and that, and the implication being that the state can make you do certain things and it's your duty to comply for the good, greater good, social solidarity, yada, yada, yada. Fine. There are reasonable and respectable arguments on both sides of this. This crap goes way back. I mean, uh, you can make the argument that goes back to Joachim of Fior or St. Augustine. Fine. We can have these arguments. <laughs> At the same time, Sorab is the guy sort of pounding this, his spoon on the table about the evilness of vaccine mandates and the, the populist upheaval against vaccine mandates. It was like, Wait a second. So, like, you can compel people to conform to your notions of the highest good, as befits an Augustinian and Aristotelian definition of the highest good, and that the state has that power because Yoram Herzoni says something about nationalism or whatever. 
but the state has no right to make you take a vaccine during a pandemic um, to save your life and the lives of others. It's inconsistent, I'll say. Oh, well, yeah, I think so. <laughs> and you'll see, and by the way, you'll see like the Hungarian mandate for vaccines is not <laughs> all that generous. Right. It's like, it's pretty stingy. Um, like you have to take it. And, um, and there's not much dissent there uh, over it either. No, it's, it's an interesting thing. Like a lot, and a lot of the more integralist, curious, like, Catholic traditionalist voices were some of the first kind of COVID era populists against public health. Like mm-hmm. you know, Rusty Reno is one of the first. Um, no, it, there's some, there is an yeah, interesting. Rusty Reno loves the New Deal, but he's against like. Uh, yeah, there's. I'm interesting. It, it's weird. It's an in, no. There's an interesting tension at play, but at the same time, like you know, it is interesting too that like some like libertarians are like. Um, who are full spectrum libertarians, you know, not just government rules, but even, you know, trying to get rid of social structures are yet the most enthusiastic advocates of corporate uh, vaccine mandates. Um, And like, that's, that's interesting. That's like a kind of interesting tension too. Um, I understand that they're basing it on like property rights and freedom of association, but like, that's interesting. Like, (laughs) You know, these are people that typically don't like communities that impose a lot of duties that an individual might uh, have a problem with. Um, so, no, it, it, it there's definitely. I just think there are a lot of intellectuals trying to claim that this populist movement is there for them. And they're trying to figure out how to climb in the saddle while the thing is galloping. And the process is not always pretty. And they fall out of the saddle a lot because in reality, populism is not inherently intellectual in any regard. Well, it's not just it's not intellectual, but like American populism will always have a don't tread on me. These are my rights um, aspect to it. Um, it, it, It'll it'll have that aspect and then it'll it'll have the other aspect to it of like, don't crucify us on a cross of gold. Right. So Mm -hmm. it, it contains both because humans contain both. And, um, in a way, like sometimes like in a way, sometimes these ideologies and our, our affiliations prevent us from just sitting down and discussing the problem. Like we all to one degree or another recognize rights and duties. And, um, and you know, it's just, where do they, where do you draw lines on which issues and on, um, you know, on public health, it's like, okay, what, what I'm reading of the the medical evidence is that these, these vaccines work to prevent serious illness and death, but like kids aren't really at risk. So I don't know. I think we should lay off on mandates on kids the way California is leaning in on them. Yeah, you know, no, that's, that's all and fair. That's, and that seems just like, um, it, to, it almost, prevents that debate from happening to then say, Oh, okay. Well, you are a populist who is rejecting the authority mm. of, of all these institutions or science itself or, or, you know, you have a problem with the Willem of Ockham or, you know, it's like, <laughs> okay, no, no, I just think based on the evidence at hand and I'm no, I'm not an expert, but democracy doesn't require me to be an expert. It just requires me to be, reasonable adult and self-governing 
and in 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 the process of self government, this is what I think, and this is what I'll I'll vote for and advocate for. Um, so yeah, like I, uh, I you know it'd probably be better for me if I could like really factionalize up and not and 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 uh, go all in. Um, but temperamentally, but you are a leaf in the wind. But temperamentally, I can't. I am a I, I am a conservative, and that also it's like bone deep and it's also temperamental too, is that sure. it's, it's, um, you know, like conservatives, we want to just be in our garden and listening to Elgar or something like that. <laughs> a lot of us, or like, wow, you know, heavy metal sometimes too. But. The most conservative characters in the Lord of the Rings are the hobbits. They just don't want to have a nice meal and live a nice home and do their thing. All <laughs> right. We got to get out of here. Um, uh, Michael Brendan Doherty, it was a pleasure to catch up with you. I haven't seen you in a while. And yeah. um, uh, we will um, have to do this again. We'll have to circle back on some of these things. Um, yeah, as we get closer to, to I, Judgment Day. <laughs> I am sure listeners are going to have, there are, there are a whole bunch of, what do the kids call them, Easter eggs in this conversation about how come you didn't pull on that thread or that thread or 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 the thing that he was invited on to talk about and fine we'll come back we'll circle back to all of them but um it's great to have you here stay safe and um hope to see you again okay so uh mbd has left uh the studio and notice i did not say the notorious mbd although if you don't listen to the editor's podcast you won't know why i even say that um it's good to catch up with him i uh i think I don't think I'm speaking out of school or unfavorably or anything like that. I could tell fairly early on that the third party thing wasn't going to work as the central conversation between us. Um, so, you know, we can revisit that with somebody who wants to sort of really engage on all that more directly another time. Um, but I, I like listening to Michael. It's kind of like, um, uh, sort of, you know, Chestertonian, uh, riffing. Um, and it's, uh, and he's such a sweet, decent guy, even if you have disagreements with him, which I obviously do, um, on various things. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm legitimately curious about the listener feedback on this one. Um, we'll see how it goes. Um, and just a little sort of, uh, production note. I leave first thing I'm recording this on now it's the afternoon because this went long. Um, I'm recording this on Thursday and normally I would record the solo remnant thing on Friday morning, but I will be on my way to the airport because I am visiting my daughter in college out in California and I'm very excited about it. Kind of giddy, kind of feel like Morgan Freeman should be narrating me as I walk down a beach or something. Um, so I will probably be recording the, solo thing uh today i have no idea what i'll talk about but um uh you should still be getting that and um thank you to everybody for the incredibly you know supportive and pop you know and 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 constructive feedback we got you know in response to all the two-year anniversary stuff um and um it's very encouraging and um and we're just we're just incredibly grateful for all of it and um other than that, I'll, I'll wait to, to, for this thing to come out for me to sort of see what more needs to be said about it. But um, other than that, I'll just, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. 
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.